0: Now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, meet one of the government's most experienced rulemaking and evaluation experts, Plus, a tiny agency has big gains in employee satisfaction scores. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the largest federal employees union recently celebrated its first big win in Europe. Last month, a group of Defense Department employees voted to join the American Federation of Government Employees. The new unit will cover 400 employees who work for the Army and Air Force's Exchange Service at the Kaiser Slautern Military Community Center Exchange in Germany. For why and how the vote came about, Anastasia Obis spoke with AFGE District 14 organizer Peter Winch.
2: AFGE heard from AFES employees in Europe, some of whom had been members stateside, and said they... They felt that the scheduling wasn't being done fairly and that they were being left with part-time work when full-time work was available. And that in some cases, the German nationals were getting the full-time work and not the Americans. And the, they had no weight in the system there. They had no no advocate. If you're not full-time, you lose a lot of benefits and in terms of days off and, uh, and paid leave and, and other things. Uh, They really, they but just in general, they need an advocate in the system, and so, AFG. I work for AFG District 14, and we have jurisdiction in the national capital region and also in Europe. So earlier this year, and Federal News Radio covered it. We launched an at-large local for DoD employees in Europe, and with the idea of using that platform, that at-large platform to start winning elections for uh different DOD operations in Europe and this is our first win and so we launched the local in uh, you know earlier in the year about June or so and we we built up quite a bit of momentum and in the in 2024 I think I'll be able to report several more election victories for different groups around Europe, different groups of DOD employees. But uh, these AFES employees are the first one and they work retail. So, you know, I think all of us have become aware of what some of the issues are in retail about scheduling and pay. And those are all factors in DOD employment. And that's, it's a retail kind of job. And one thing that President Biden did was with AFGs, you know, working on it, was to make a $15 an hour minimum for federal employment. We worked to get that to include what they call non-appropriated fund employees. So NAF employees are non-appropriated fund. They're paid from what the store makes rather than paid from taxpayer dollars. And we, we requested that Biden... Uh, Stretch that executive order to include the NAF employees that we you know, around the country that we have an interest in. So the AFEs Europe benefited from that. They were making considerably less than fifteen, uh, for the most part. Also, uniquely in Europe, DOD has a policy of trying to rotate you back to the United States after a period of time, and you can get extended on that. But if you don't play ball they'll send you right back sometimes at your own expense so there's a lot of there's a lot of injustice that's been brought to afg's attention for dod employees in europe and um, i could tell you about some of the other agencies we're we're interested in but we hope we have a council of afis locals we have a master agreement and right away uh, now that we're certified by the flra They'll get things that are in the contract, like work shoes and uniforms that they weren't getting or they were having to pay for themselves. Could you talk about the total number of employees and now the percentage of part-time employees? During this whole process, it was 420, 395, but it's right around 400. And around half of them are part-time employees. They're in different locations, but they're all under one store, one general manager, one supervision. And we also, uh, we're, we have active committees, AFI's organizing committees going on. It, so this, is, this area is where most of American employment in Germany is con- or in Europe is concentrated, which is in the Wiesbaden area, sort of near Frankfurt, Germany. We also have a committee in Stuttgart, Panzer, for AFI's and at um in brussels in belgium so this is we could have asked for an election across the continent for all afi's locations but we decided to build like some momentum and some and and we just had to get familiar with the workforce and like i said some of the little differences like we didn't know that there were 40 or 50 people working serving school lunches uh and so we, we, it was a learning, somewhat of a learning curve for us. Even though, I and and by us, uh, we have an AFG legal rights attorney named Javier Soto, who's stationed, who has an AFG Europe office in the Wiesbaden area, in the in the Kaiserslautern area. He's been taking cases of members of dues paying members, and he's been conducting these organizing campaigns with myself and others assist like you and I are via Zoom, because we learned during COVID that we could reach out and do things virtually, because Europe had been sort of a lost cause for the union for some time. And we just got a lot more skilled and a lot more of the resources we need. And but the issues are pretty much the same. In Europe, people get part of their pay is a local quarter allowance or LQA. And there's just a lot of issues with the LQA. We don't have that in the state side. So Javier has been learning how to represent federal employees in Europe, and we're doing it pretty effectively. But what we need to not represent individuals, but start representing bargaining units. And this is our first one. What was the attitude among those workers throughout this entire process? Well, we had some few firebrands who, you know, I'm over here Javier can't be circulating these cards. We didn't We didn't pay for an organizer to go to Europe. This was person-to-person, worker-to-worker, circulating these cards, which you are legally entitled, federal employees are legally entitled to circulate these cards, but they have to do it in a non-work status, before work or after work. They can't do it on the clock. And they just, uh, we had some very Strongly motivated individuals, and they quickly got us the whole showing of interest that we needed. They knew their colleagues, they knew what their issues were. Javier and I participated in, and and so did our national vice president Otis Johnson in several Zoom calls that we arranged, where we had large turnout and people wanted to talk about their issues. And it was just it was gratifying to see the big turnout and the the quick collection of the showing of interest cards, and the cards don't make you a member. Now we'll go into a phase where we're going to ask them to agree to become dues-paying members, but I'm confident that we will build a membership base, and we have people who are willing to be officers and stewards. Our master agreement with APHES allows for local supplements, so our goal will be to get a local supplement at, at in Germany, that covers their specific working conditions and some of, the, some of the issues that they raise to us.
1: Peter Winch, organizer for AFGE District 14, speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a tiny agency has big gains in employee satisfaction scores. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board has a short but somewhat turbulent history. One chairman was forced out for mismanagement. Another resigned early because the White House proposed getting rid of the board altogether. More recently, things have stabilized. In the latest Federal Employee Viewpoint survey scores, engagement at the Chemical Safety Board rose by 29 percent. So we decided to get an update, and I'm joined now by the chairman, Steve Owens. Mr. Owens, good to have you with us.
3: Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you.
1: And let's begin just by maybe a quick review of what the Chemical Safety Board, the CSB, actually does.
3: Well, that's a great question. You know, The Chemical Safety Board, actually the official name is the U.S. Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, which is a mouthful. But uh, it's probably the most important agency that uh, most people have never heard of in the federal government. But our mission is to uh, investigate uh, chemical accidents and hazards that result from the production, processing, and handling of chemical substances at facilities. Now, those are because the Chemical Safety Board was created as part of the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments. Our mission is focused on what are called stationary sources, basically things that don't move. <laughs> so if it's a refinery or production facility or, in some cases, even a pipeline, we have authority to investigate it if it's moving item, such as the train that derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this year. And we don't have jurisdiction over that. That's the NTSB. We also, in our statute and our regulations, you'll focus on a specific types of incidents and more categorical in terms of uh, whether there's a fatality, serious injury, or substantial property damage. So we have to look at a variety of factors when we uh, deploy to a scene to investigate something that has gone wrong.
1: Sure. So maybe the closest parallel would be the National Transportation Safety Board that you kind of mobilize and go there when something happens because plants do blow up once in a while
3: they catch on fire too
1: <laughs> yeah. sometimes yeah but yeah
3: the ntsb is a great analogy and in fact the CSB was modeled on the ntsb when it was created back in 1990 now they're a different entity they're much larger uh, they have 10 times as many employees and 10 times as much money as we do and a very 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 broad jurisdiction. And we work very closely with them. But the way our relationship with the NTSB works is if they determine that they have jurisdiction over a matter, then we step back. But sometimes we will both go into an accident investigation, unsure of what the cause is or exactly who is supposed to be in charge. And then we work that out as things move forward.
1: All right. And you are classified by OPM in the FEV scores and generally as a very small agency. How many people work there?
3: (laughs) Well, as of today, we have 41 uh, employees. A couple of more are starting right at the end of calendar year 23. And then there's a couple of more that we've made offers to have accepted and are going through the onboarding process, background checks, things like that. So by early next year, we'll be up to around 45 or so. And our hope and goal is during this fiscal year, fiscal year 24, that by the end of the fiscal year, we'll be up uh, around, if not above, 50 employees. It doesn't sound like much compared to other agencies where I worked, for example, like uh, EPA, where I worked during the Obama administration. But for the CSB, that's a big deal. When our previous chairperson resigned at the end of July of uh, 2022, we had 30 employees at the time. So some people have left. The chairperson left. A couple of her political appointees left. So we've had some uh, departures, but we've hired a, a lot of people. Since that time, and the agency is really, as we like to say, we're in the process of rebuilding and revitalizing the agency. It really is beginning. The agency is really beginning to move forward in a very positive way.
1: And there is an appointed board, but I imagine the bulk of the staff has some technical expertise in different areas of chemical safety and chemical processing behavior and chemical effects.
3: Absolutely. The majority of the employees at the CSB right now, and as it will be going forward, are individuals who work in our Office of Investigations and Recommendations, and many of them, in fact, almost all of them, are chemical engineers. They have chemical engineering degrees, some undergraduate degrees, but some both undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in chemical engineering we have some attorneys on staff and our Office of General Counsel. We also have a number of administrative staff who are mostly focused in the Washington, D.C. area. There are probably about a dozen or so, as of this point, administrative staff that we have. But again, the majority of the uh, individuals who work at the CSB are uh, chemical engineers or people with very uh, significant technical skills because what they have to do is go out and look at a, a refinery or a chemical production facility that's had an explosion or a fire or some other a major uh, catastrophe occur, and uh, piecing it all together to figure out what went wrong.
1: We're speaking with Steve Owens. He's chairman of the Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board. And you personally have a history of managing environmental organizations, EPA, and also in the state of Arizona. So the scores, the employee engagement global satisfaction scores went up 28%. Engagement score went up 29% in the most recent survey. What have you done there, do you think, to make people feel more engaged? What's changed?
3: Thank you for asking about that, Tom, because that's something that we're very proud of when those results came out. When I became the, kind of a funny term, but the interim executive, which was essentially the acting chair when our former chairperson, then I was confirmed as the Full chair in December of 2022, but morale at the agency was very low. People were fairly disheartened because of a lot of things, not the least of which you mentioned uh, when the former president had tried to abolish it. And, you know, that'll, uh, that'll give you something to think about if you're working at an agency. And the president zeroes out your budget, but there were a lot of other things that were going on under the previous leadership at the agency. And so. We've done a number of different things. I think uh, from a global perspective, the most important thing is you treat employees with respect. You listen to them. You uh, recognize that these are very talented and dedicated career employees, some of whom have been in the agency a long time. And so when Sylvia Johnson, who was the other board member who was confirmed at the time I was in early 22 when I first came on the board, uh, when we first joined the CSB, we spent some time. Uh, doing kind of get to know you sessions. You know, uh, our staff is scattered all across the country. We have some in D.C., but the majority of the staff at the CSB are not in D.C. They're all across the United States. We even have a staff person in Alaska. So we did these virtual get to know you sessions, which were very, very, very important, mostly talking to people about who they are, what their background is, what what their families are, you know, what their families are like, rather, and what they care about. And then after the change in leadership, we sort of did a go back and did a Uh, how you doing? (laughs) You know, series of sessions with people just to see what was on their mind. And that was very helpful to uh, board member Johnson and myself in that regard. And then we've got a new board member, uh, Kathy Sandoval, who joined us in February of 2023. You know, she's been very active in terms of communicating with the staff as well. But from a process point of view, one of the, I think the most important stuff we did was sort of make clear what our priorities are for the agency to give some direction to the staff, set expectations uh, and hold people accountable, but didn't get out of their way. <laughs> you know, I learned in the time that I've been doing these kinds of jobs, as you indicated, I was the uh, director of the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality uh, when Janet Napolitano was our governor. And then during the Obama administration, I was head of the Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention. And even way before that, I started my career working for uh, Al Gore. I'm originally from Tennessee and I was on his staff in DC in both the House and Senate, but I was his chief of staff in the state of Tennessee. We had slightly under 20 staff scattered all across the state of Tennessee. So when, and this was back in the 1980s with all our offices when he was in the Senate. So essentially we were all kind of working virtually at that point anyway, because I had to spend a lot of time on the telephone or getting in the car and driving to Memphis or Jackson, Tennessee, or Knoxville or Chattanooga or the Tri-Cities or wherever to try to manage a staff that wasn't all in one place. So I learned a lot about how to do things right and learned a lot about what not to do. When you're a manager through those positions, I've been very, very fortunate in my life in that regard.
1: My guest is Steve Owens, chairman of the Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, and you were telling us some of the changes you've made to make employees more satisfied at work.
3: Uh, the other thing is when I became the acting Chairperson. And then when we had the change in leadership, we did a number of things to get rid of a lot of the bureaucracy. I mean, it, it seems sort of hard to talk about or unusual to talk about a very small agency without that many people having a large bureaucracy, but we certainly did at that time. I had never seen so much bureaucracy in terms of making people's jobs more difficult than they ought to be in terms of the way things had to be reported up, the way things had to be cleared, the number of people who had to sign off on things. Including investigation reports and uh, just the paperwork and uh,
1: paperwork is one thing, but also the sense that people have no discretion over their area well, of expertise. Right. I think maybe the fundamental factor there.
3: Well, you kind of read my mind. That was the next thing I was going to mention was that while we were doing that, you know, you want to um, get rid of the bureaucracy and stop looking over their shoulders. And not micromanage them which certainly what was going on when i came on the board from the the chairperson and and the team that she had in place and many employees as you just mentioned tom did not feel that they had the discretion or the authority to do the jobs the way that they thought they ought to be done And it kind of goes to the point i said about just getting out of people's way now you got to pay attention but on the other hand you have to assume these folks know what they're doing You know, since they uh, had some time at the agency and they've got great backgrounds uh, and were qualified in the first place. And that's worked out pretty well for us so far. We've seen that, you know, people are getting, being very efficient at getting their jobs done. People are working more closely together in teams, certainly in ways differently from the way that they did before. And the proof is in the pudding. In addition to the uh, viewpoint survey results that you pointed to, Tom, we just, Completely cleared up the uh, long-standing backlog of investigation reports that had plagued this agency for many years. Again, when Sylvia Johnson and I came on the board, there was a backlog of 17 open investigations and reports that had not yet been issued. Some dating all the way back to 2016, and as of uh, December 26th, we just issued the 17th and final report uh, in the backlog. And I think not only is that a good thing for the agency, but it's a good thing for the employees themselves because they got it done. You know, they rolled up their sleeves. They knew it was going to be hard. They knew they were going to have to put some sweat equity into the project. But we were all in it together. And while I think there were some folks both inside and outside the agency who thought, yeah, really, we'll believe that when we see it in terms (laughs) of getting rid of the, uh, the backlog, we did it.
1: Just a detailed yeah. question. You said the backlog was cleared as of the 26th of December. People yeah. didn't have to work on Christmas Day to do that. Maybe no, they worked the 24th. No.
3: We, uh, we gave them that day off. We released it on the 26th. I should have actually approved the prior week, but we released it on the 26th. It's just in terms of the public uh,
1: awareness of it, it came out on the 26th. Final question. You like the job, sounds like.
3: Oh, gosh, yeah, it's a great job. You know, you go through... Um, a process. I actually raised my hand and asked for this job. And I'll be frank, I was told by uh, the White House when uh, you know my presidential appointee had to be confirmed by the Senate and all that fun stuff. But I asked uh, to be appointed to the Chemical Safety Board. Didn't ask to be chair, but that just kind of happened, you know. But and to be frank, uh, during the initial process, uh, I was told by the uh, the Presidential Personnel Office, you know, we don't get too many people who actually volunteer to serve on the. On the Chemical Safety Board, given you know all the issues that the board has had, you know over the years and the challenges that it's faced, but I had been aware of the agency uh, for many years, uh, going all the way back to my days as the Arizona DEQ director, because they investigated uh, a site in Arizona while I was the director there, and of course at EPA running the Chemical Safety Office, you sort of pay attention to, to the CSB, but I was also, to be frank, disheartened. To see all the things that the agency, in particular, the employees of the agency were having to go through uh, over the years, you know, as you indicated, it didn't just start with the previous administration, it went back a number of years. And so to be able to work with the team that we have here and to be able to get done what we've been able to get done so far has really been a, a treat. And uh, we're all very excited because now that we've got the backlog completed, uh, people are feeling much better about the agency, feeling good about the jobs that they are doing. But we've got a real opportunity to do some uh, very important things in the
1: year ahead. We are speaking with Steve Owens, chairman of the Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board. You know, and maybe the big lesson here is that in a very small agency, leadership has maybe a lot more leverage over the scores. I mean, when you take an agency like Homeland Security, a couple of hundred thousand employees, the leadership is so distant from the average work-a-day line employee that a lot of turmoil can happen that doesn't really seep down to that level. So their scores kind of bump along, up three points, sure. down three points. At a place like the CSB, you can go from basement to stellar because One person or two people, maybe the board, can have a big effect when there's only 40 people, in effect, voting each year.
3: Well, you know, that's a great point. I will tell you, uh, um, you know, what I've thought a lot about, you know, because this is a different type of agency from the one that worked at before the Arizona DEQ. At Arizona DEQ, we had about 700 employees when I was the director there at EPA. In the office I was in charge of, it was between 12 and 1300 employees. So it's just a different experience. And that was another reason why I was very interested in joining the CSB because it is small. Because you get to know the people on a much greater personal level. The upside is that you can spend time with them. You understand what's going on more on a day-to-day basis. As you indicated, you can really, if something's going wrong, you can help fix it very quickly. Uh, the downside is that because it's so small, if one person's having a bad day, <laughs> you know, or or is off his or her game, you know. It can have a much more uh, impactful ripple effect on an agency like the CSB than it did at DPA or the Arizona uh, DEQ. So the other thing that we kind of going back to your very first question, but one of the other things that we've really tried to do and maintain is keep people talking to each other in this day and age where people all too readily fire off emails <laughs> that maybe they shouldn't. What we've said is, look, you know, pick up the phone if you've got a question or a concern or a problem um, or you just don't understand something rather than spending the time to write an email and then maybe send one that you shouldn't. In addition to that, we've really put a premium on getting people together. We reinstituted senior staff meetings, which are all the supervisory staff in the agency, but we're doing them more frequently. We do them on a weekly basis. Now we started. I know they did them once in a while, but we really started regular monthly virtual all-hands meetings because we have staff scattered all across the country. So we do that every month, and then we started in-person all-hands meetings on a uh, twice-yearly basis to get the whole team together, or at least everybody who's able to travel to come to an in-person meeting. And and so far, the reviews on that have been pretty good. Sometimes some people can't make it. Sometimes folks are busy, but And the whole point of that is for people to get to know each other better, to spend time talking to each other outside of a work context. But also, if they've got things that they just want to figure out about what other people do in the agency, uh, they had the opportunity to to raise them on the calls, the virtual calls, the video calls we have, or to uh, address it face-to-face during our in-person meetings. You know, the bottom line of a lot of this, and I, it sounds a little trite, but what I say to the people at uh, the CSB is I see my job and I think I see everybody else's job is to make everyone else's job easier. You know, what is it that I can do on a daily basis that's going to make uh, them be able to get their jobs done in a way that takes the least amount of time and uh, the least amount of stress, but also all the stuff that goes along that you have to put up with in an agency like ours, whether it's, you know, the filling out the forms, you know, getting reimbursed for travel or, you know, things like that, that we can make simpler and clearer to people and get it done more quickly so that you don't spend as much time spinning your wheels on on non-productive activities. And
1: And you strike me as a guy that probably doesn't throw typewriters or slam phones or swear out loud a lot. (laughs) Uh,
3: Occasionally, every now and then, I could get a little... That's when I usually put myself on mute (laughs) on the calls, but... uh, yeah, well, you have to sort of just kind of roll with it from time to time. And, uh, you know, like anybody, I can get kind of wound up from uh, every now and then. But by and large, it's a great group of people uh, at the CSB. Some of them as I said, have been there a long time, so they have the benefit of the history that they can share with newer employees, not so much younger, but newer employees. But I, I would tell you, Tom, that one of the things that uh, I realized very early on is that there is an upside also to having so many newer employees at an agency because they weren't around when all that crazy stuff was going on a, a number of years ago. And they, they came to the CSB to do their job. I, I, there were several employees, and I'll be frank, uh, that I was surprised uh, to hear it from them, but they said that working at the CSB was their dream job that these were people who worked either in the petroleum industry or in a chemical manufacturing facility or something like that. And they had watched the CSB over the years, seen the great work that it had done. And when the opportunity to apply for a position uh, arose, they jumped on it. Now, one of the older challenges that the agency had historically that we're still trying to fix is how, how long it takes to actually hire people. <laughs> you know, it's
1: like well, that's universal. There's a lot
3: of hoops. There's a lot of hoops you got to jump through just to hire somebody to a, uh, at an agency like this. And so um, but we're working to improve that process as well. So.
1: Steve Owens is chairman of the Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board. Thanks so much for joining me.
3: Well, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And I hope, uh, hope this has been of some
1: help to people out there. So, And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, meet one of the government's most experienced rulemaking and evaluation experts. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. No agency proposes a big rule until it gets the okay from an office little known to the public. My next guest is the permanent deputy administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, known as OIRA. Now he's the recipient of a 2024 Presidential Rank Award. Dominic Mancini joins me now in studio. Mr. Mancini, good to have you with us.
0: Uh, Pleasure to be here, Tom.
1: Well, first of all, why do you think you got the presidential rank award? Because the White House didn't say. And you have been there more than 20 years, and you've seen a lot of big rules go by. That's
0: correct. Well, well, first, you'd have to ask the folks who nominated me. But I will say, and I truly mean this, it really was uh, the accomplishments of the team that I was just able to help facilitate. But there, I think, were a few areas that they cited. One was the COVID, uh, the pandemic, where uh, we'll get a little bit into how we normally do our job under the executive order for regulatory review. But one thing that we do normally is have 90 days to review something. And, of course, during COVID, it, that was if we had 90 hours, that would have been too long. And so we kind of had to rip up the playbook and come up with something that uh, facilitated intergovernment just coordination of a lot of rapidly moving things. So that was one of the things that they cited is our office's ability to pivot and work much faster than we normally are uh, comfortable working. And I think a couple things that they also talked about uh, in this administration, this administration on day one put together a very ambitious regulatory, what they called the modernization agenda. And that involved both updating and facilitating a lot of uh, climate change policy and regulation. And our office played a key role And that both a coordinating role and also offering some of the expertise in the economics of of climate change. And also more generally, uh, they committed, the president committed our office um, day one to do what we call regulatory monetization, which was looking at all of our policies and making sure that those policies are updating them to be more consistent with this administration's priorities. And those among those were doing a better job of figuring out who was impacted by regulation. We did a pretty good job looking at the net efficiency, looking at the cost and benefits of regulation, but not necessarily who was impacted, who was hurt. And they really wanted us to place an emphasis on that in both our information function and our regulatory function. So those were the main things that they
1: That's a good time to ask about the basic function of OIRA. I think a lot of people in the federal government may not even know what it does. And you might want to explain it, especially when you talk about regulatory reform in the context of the ACUS, the Administrative Conference of the United States. They have a lot to say about rulemaking as a process. OIRA, I guess, is more concerned with the content of rules. So maybe sort that out for us. (laughs) Sure,
0: sure. So, um, actually, the office, I'll, do, I'll give a very brief bit of history, uh, which was the office was actually created under the, what's called the Paperwork Reduction Act of 1980. But then at that time, President Reagan uh, very quickly kind of um, also gave it an additional assignment to review uh, draft and final regulations to make sure they're consistent with the principles of the administration and that they basically have an evidentiary basis. So the costs and benefits worked out. That's basically what we've been doing ever since. The modern version of this is Executive Order One Two Eight Six Six, which we're all required to memorize. That was issued by President Clinton, and it's still the procedures under uh, we work. And to give you a sense of like maybe the cultural history of Hawaii, we actually recently just had an anniversary celebration of the thirtieth anniversary of an executive order, which is something that can only happen in D.C. <laughs> <I> was going <laughs> to say yes, that's something that's really great talk
1: at barbecues, isn't it?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So. So, what do we look at when a regulation comes in? Uh, So, I'll be very brief. It's uh, We only look at a subset of regulations that we call significant. And if you think you go back to what Congress tells an agency to do, for instance, they tell an agency for fuel economy regulations, they will say, go do good fuel economy regulations, but how does an agency actually decide what level of that to do? And so, our office really The agency is responsible for doing the analysis to justify any particular level of fuel economy that they would like, and the structure of the regulation. So, that can get a lot more complicated, everything from how to measure it, uh, how to uh, make sure different sizes of car might not have the same fuel economy standards, how to actually uh, look at whether it be climate change benefits, fuel savings benefits, uh, increase in the price of new cars versus cars. And so our our office actually reviews these in a transactional basis to just make sure that the agency is doing a good job and offer advice. And as a derivative and as an important function, we also set the standards themselves in order to the agencies have to look. And this is through OMB policy that we do a whole uh, series of things that we just finished actually last month to update our actual analytical standards for how to look at uh, the impacts of rules.
1: We're speaking with Dominic Mancini. He's the deputy administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, part of the White House, and a presidential rank award recipient this year. That brings up an interesting question. You are a civil servant, and you have been there at OIRA since 2002, I believe. So you've seen the yo-yo back and forth, or the pendulum back and forth, with Republican and Democratic administrations. They often have very different philosophical frameworks very different approaches to how they want rules to be done. What's that like? And how do you deal with that? Because as a civil servant, you and your staff have to simply deal with the balls that are that are pitched to you.
0: Uh, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, one of my duties actually is I'm kind of right in the middle of that because I do act as the head of the office, so the administrator during presidential transitions, and I did act in that capacity and the last two transitions for very different administrations. Really, what we, what I try to tell the staff is these are really at the end of the day, we do have our the policies and words that we have that we take incredibly seriously. But one of those policies is to ensure that agencies are working towards presidential priorities. It really is a balance. Every administration, when they come in, they have a particular way, um, at least in my experience, everyone I've seen, as a particular regulatory philosophy. Every administration freezes the regulations of the previous administration. So that is one of the things that we do. I think really at the end of the day, it sometimes is a hard balance. Most administrations, I think all administrations that I've worked with, have at the end of the day have said something like, we know that we have a different philosophy, but we still want to make sure that what we do is based on evidence and policy. And um, and ultimately – the regulations are also subject to courts, and the courts can also come in and decide whether administration is actually adhering to the principles as established in each of the regulatory statutes that are that we set and we look at. Yes,
1: because the power to regulate is, in fact, the power—at least the potential—to destroy. And you can wreck an industry, or you can, you know, effectuate change that is beyond what Congress envisioned with a law, or even what perhaps an administration thinks it was imagining. Do you ever come across where you might say, well, maybe this is not exactly what you want to do here?
0: Well, that, I think that is one of the principles of the executive order to look at alternatives. Um, and, and at the end of the day, the agency is responsible, and that's in the words of the executive order. And our our policy is which alternative uh, and you should look at different alternatives. A wire doesn't really take, say, a policy position Understood. on a rule. Right. But we will say, oh, this, this option might have a better evidentiary basis based on the principles that we've set than another option. Uh, and we might recommend that. Um, and that happens sometimes.
1: And your bio, just to switch gears here for a minute, mentions that you were responsible for serving as the lead in the implementation of the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act and the Federal Data Strategy. How does that fit in with OIRA? And tell us what you did.
0: So, So first you have to look at the name. It is the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. So we actually do have – we've talked a lot about regulation so far, but that is one of kind of the two pillars of OIRA, and the other is information policy. This takes the form of – under the Paperwork Reduction Act, we approve collections of information from the public. And actually under the Evidence Act, Foundations for Evidence-Based Policy Act, there's two parts of OIRA, the Office of the Chief Statistician of the United States, which is actually in OIRA, and the privacy branch, which is actually also in OIRA, and they have explicit priorities and, and implementation responsibilities under the Evidence Act. Uh, this is really things such as, and we could go on for a long time, but um, for instance, the Evidence Act required the agencies to put together which was a, a single portal for if a researcher would like to access data from the public. And we call it the SAP. I'm not even sure what
1: that means, <laughs> those those uh, those initials. But Yeah, there was a data.gov, I think, that got established in the, 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 the data. Obama Gov. administration, the, the repository. But that has evolved quite a great right. deal since and, then.
0: And this is more – so the data.gov, if you think about it, that's kind of the menu. of That's the kind of the resources that are already publicly available. But researchers sometimes want much more sensitive data, and that has mm-hmm. to be subject to confidentiality restrictions and maybe even going in a federal – like a controlled space in order for them to research, right. and that's what I'm talking about. And that's that's basically the information function of OIR is actually – and it dovetails uh, very well if you think about decision-making. Like it goes back to OIRA tries to help administrations make better decisions. And the information that goes into those decisions is often the make-or-break moment for when you're going to make a good decision. So OIRA has both policies and implementation responsibilities in that information production and also the regulatory review.
1: And you seem pretty enthusiastic about work that is totally intellectual, uh, totally uh, numbers-based in many ways. It sounds like the economics background is really what drives you.
0: Uh, yeah, I'll, it's um, – It's a little bit of everything. I think it can be extremely technically challenging if you think about understanding the literature for climate change. And that gets into all these large economy-wide models.
1: Because they don't all
0: agree. They don't all agree. And there's also how to synthesize those very different models. Uh, And if you looked at the um, latest EPA numbers, which I'll say very emphatically that EPA is the one responsible for the content of their reviews, but we do review those, those numbers. There's a lot of different comparisons of, of models. Uh, it can also, It's a lot of times it's not as intellectual. It's not as much based on the numbers. It's about who believes what and you know coalition building and negotiation. And I think uh, if you're of a technical mindset and believe that's the way you should make decisions, but also enjoy... The cut and the thrust of you know briefing up and decision making and and that kind of thing. I think it's a great place to be.
1: And just a devil's advocate question: You might be seen again in some quarters, and we, we, we definitely don't take sides on this show. As an unelected bureaucrat with a lot of power over the economy, what's your answer to that? If that comes uh, up at for, that at that barbecue?
0: Yeah. First of all, I think no one has nearly as much power <laughs> as anyone thinks. I think the what I do bring up is that. You know, one of I said this already. That one of our principles is being kind of the eyes and ears of an administration, and we are emphatically a career-driven organization. It's ninety percent career. We do have pol- policy officials that we report to, and those ultimately are pretty close to the only elected official in the executive branch, which is the president and, and the vice president by, der- by der- derivation. So we do sure. feel like. Uh, we are exercising authorities that are very well grounded in in um, the administration as as being in an elected office
1: and also you know the the regulatory processes of the u s federal government have been described as the gold standard in fact around the world in fact, I think a lot of government officials elsewhere have come to the United States to learn how our government goes about rulemaking. Is that part of your kind of background uh, thinking when you're going about your work?
0: That is, actually. We do have a presence in some of the international organizations, such as the OECD and, and APEC. And we work a lot with the Canadians and the Regulatory Cooperation Council. I would defer to the OECD on what they they think does the best job, but they do emphasize things such as, uh, as you said before, there needs to, there's, this is a large lot of decisions are being made that have a large impact on people's lives, and having some accountability in those decisions, and those include public participation in those decisions. So notice and comment and that can take many different forms across the world. It includes. Providing an evidentiary basis for those decisions, that's where analytical principles. And I think the U.S. does a pretty good job in, 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 all of those, in all those areas.
1: Dominic Mancini is the Deputy Administrator in the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs at the White House and a Presidential Rank Award recipient this year. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. At the National Maritime Intelligence Integration Office, or NIMEO, the mission is to coordinate and integrate information from numerous federal agencies and countries, all in the pursuit of watching out for threats and bad behavior on the water. When your area of responsibility is the entire Earth's ocean surface, you've got to set some priorities. For how that all works, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu talked with NIMEO's Senior Strategy Advisor, Todd Boone.
4: The volume and velocity of data these days um, is tremendous, and we need to use tools in order to help us do that. So it's very important um, in doing that to make sure that we clearly differentiate good and bad behavior in that massive volume of data. And the different agencies, they have many different tools and techniques to go over the decades of knowledge and data that they have to sit through in order to identify these critical insights. So, for example, both the U.S. Coast Guard Intelligence Coordination Center and ONI, they look at patterns of behavior and help differentiate between what looks normal and what looks abnormal. An example of that is Sea Vision. Now, Sea Vision is a web-based maritime situational awareness tool that enables users to view and share a whole broad array of maritime information, primarily for this tool on vessels of interest. So ONI and Coast Guard ICC analysts all possess a deep understanding of the maritime industry and therefore can distinguish between normal and abnormal processes. So for example, uh, we've had seen success in uh, support to counter narcotics where criminal organizations seek to take advantage Of the maritime industry for the movement of their illicit goods and materials. But by analyzing their patterns and detecting anomalies in what normally happens in the maritime industry and identifying the abnormal behavior of these actors, analysts can then enable a whole range of actions to disrupt or deny the illicit activity, either by queuing U.S. assets or by sharing that information with our partners and allies. So yes, the broader maritime community applies expert knowledge to the use of several tools, analytic techniques, and newer algorithms that find the exact bad actor and passes that information to the decision makers for action.
0: And that requirement to distinguish between normal and abnormal behavior strikes me that that's something machines are increasingly getting better at, especially AI. It's a great application for something like AI. Is that coming into play at all in this space, or is it still the case that you really need human expertise on this problem set?
4: Right. The answer is both. So first, let me state that the DOD has been publishing policies and guidance on the ethical use of AI, And all of our stakeholders talk about their cautious approach to developing and deploying this technology. What I would offer is that the maritime community is working hard to adopt some of these newest best practices and technology. And AI refers to a whole spectrum of different tools and techniques. And those technologies are always changing. So let's take ONI as an example again. ONI began applying data science and tools and techniques back in 2018. And the Naval Intelligence AI strategy, it focuses on improving three things, right? So it focuses on reducing analytical timelines. Secondly, it, it focuses on improving relevancy and the accuracy of analysis. And finally, it helps to generate new previously unseen insights from the data that a human could never find in 10 years of sifting through the data. So, using cloud-based data services, the maritime community is also working to make more data available to more international partners to improve their direct understanding of the maritime environment and also to encourage greater sharing from those partners back to the United States as well. So. Going back to the ethical use of AI, it is important to note, right, that all of Naval Intelligence Data Science applications have either human in the loop oversight or human over the loop oversight. So in the loop means that analysts receive the output from the model and then make their own evidence-based decisions. So for example, sea Vision's illegal fishing model detects illegal fishing. The analyst decides whether or not the model is correct. Now, over the loop is machine-to-machine interaction, where analysts oversee the process. And again, taking C-Vision as an example, that tool has a model that takes multiple automated information system thoughts and decides which ones are connected to form a ship track and which ones belong to a different ship track. Now, that automation is based on subject matter expert collaboration on developing the model beforehand. Now, that automation in this case is not so much the computer making the decision, but rather the subject matter expert setting the decision criteria. As this technology and the expert knowledge of the mission changes, they have to go back and interact periodically to keep those models current. So the future of naval intelligence is not just about physical capabilities of the fleet. It is about the power of our data, right? The key to unlocking the next era of our maritime strategy lies in the algorithms and the analytics that get developed with this new technology. It's obvious, right, that data science and machine learning will shape the future of maritime analysis. All of our partners are currently working to adopt modern data science and cloud native tools as part of the wider DoD IC investment in cloud services that we've been talking about. ONI is planning to leverage machine learning in video transcript generation. They're looking to use it to summarize native language into English. They want to deploy chat box, apply computer vision to search large amounts of images and video, Um, and even generating predictive models of adversaries' intentions. That goes back to identifying patterns and the anomalies and putting that information back into a model that can help identify that through the vast array of data. So when new technologies are incorporated, that is based on mission need and how a new technology will help the maritime community enhance maritime domain awareness and better inform policy and operations. So on a broader Navy level, the Navy's uncrewed family of systems and the new replicator program, they will be leveraging machine learning as well as an affordable alternative to the way that the Navy has built and sustained, you know, the fleet in the previous century. So Jared, remember MDA is anything associated with the maritime domain that could impact the safety economy or the environment. It's foundational language, and there's many tools and techniques that we're uh, bringing on board to identify critical insight.
1: Todd Boone, Senior Strategy Advisor for the National Maritime Intelligence Integration Office, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.